That is good. Grab a Bible. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. I had given Vic a bit of a bum steer this week. He said, on Thursday, what are you preaching on on Sunday? Now, Vic knows better to ask me on Thursday what I'm going to preach on Sunday. And so I think I've written five sermons since then. The one we're doing today is not what I told you. But we're going to be in First Peter chapter 1. Just those last couple of verses in the opening chapter of Peter's first epistle relates to the the awesomeness, the robustness, the the living and abiding Word of God. So as you grab your Bible, I'm going to read for us 1 Peter 1 verses 24 and 25, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes here this evening discussing the Word of God. This is how God's Word reads to us here this evening, 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory... Like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God bless that reading to our ears and to our lives in Jesus' name. Awesome. As a preacher, there are a lot of great themes that you can preach on, but I have to admit, 20 plus years now preaching the gospel, initially just all in the open air, and then as I kind of got, you know, sharpened my craft a little bit, churches opened up, and now we planted this little church back in 2008, and it's gone on to do some pretty awesome things, but I have to say... As a preacher of the Word of God, there are very few themes that are as satisfying as being able to preach the Word of God about the Word of God. It's, it's just a tremendous blessing. And so I really hope tonight you can enter into some of that with me as we think about these thoughts of Peter in reflection to all flesh is like grass. Now, now when Peter says that, he means everything in the natural order, from like comets and asteroids and planets and suns and galaxies to things even in our world, like, 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 like micro, microscopic bacteria to the blue whale to every human that's ever lived. Everything corporeal, everything fleshly is like grass. It, it, it reflects a, a mortality. It, it reflects a, a limitedness and a a vulnerability, and that's what Peter wants to stress. So as you think about all of the enormous human achievements of all of human history, right? We think about emperors and empires and conquerors like Alexander the Great and Charlemagne and Genghis Khan and even modern-day colonial powers like Japan and Spain and the British Empire. Peter says it's all just grass, grass that in a a strong sunshine at noonday will wilt and brown and fade. And even the flower of the grass, like even, even when you look at a, at, a, at, a, at a pristine meadow and you kind of look and you focus your eye and see all this beautiful green, and every now and then there's like a flower just cropping up. Peter says, even that, the glory of that flower are the height of all human achievements in science and medicine and academia And it's all just prone to utterly fall. The grass withers, the flower falls. In fact, as we stress that a little bit, it can be a little bit depressing, right? It can be confronting to just get a real dose of reality as to our vulnerability, our humanness and our fallenness. But, But for Peter, it's meant to be jarring in contrast to the living and the abiding word of God. In fact, for Jesus, 
Jesus even stresses and emphasizes the point on multiple occasions that heaven and earth shall entirely pass away before the smallest punctuation mark in God's word begins to expire or wane or lose its power. That is the stability and the robustness of the word of God. That's the emphasis that Paul wants to offer. Now, in one sense, as I said, it can be a little jarring. But in another sense, it reveals a rich history of people, powerful people, wealthy people, people that commanded armies of of tremendous strength that set themselves against the word of God. And what remains? The Bible. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that once said it best. He said, he said, the word of God is an anvil that has worn out every hammer that strikes against it. The Bible remains while these other figures of history and these emperors and these philosophies have all come to naught. As I was thinking about this, preparing this talk tonight, I thought to myself, one of the best examples of that has to be the example of Paul the Apostle. Paul's been on his missionary journeys. You've read this in the book of Acts. And he's had tremendous success in certain places and churches have sprung up. And he's also been tremendously persecuted, shipwrecked, starved, whipped, beaten. At one point, he was stoned so bad that his executioners just presumed that he was dead. And so they walked away and, 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 and Paul just kind of, he rouses, comes to. It's almost like a silly old Western movie. And, and Paul gets up and what does he do? He walks straight back into the town where they just stoned him to proclaim Christ. And after all of these long journeys of great turmoil and triumph, Paul arrives at Athens. Now, when we say Athens, you have to get a sense of the enormity of this. Athens is the, 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 the city of the philosophical titans of the world. It, it, at the top of Athens is a hill called Mars Hill, where all of the professional, colossal intellects, Luke says, spend all their time doing nothing but debating, engaging, dialoguing, and discovering human philosophical thought. And, and, and Paul goes to Athens because initially he's really just sent there to, to rest. But what we read in Acts 17 is that when Paul arrives in the city of Athens, all of the idols in the city, what do they do? They provoke him. It says his, his soul was agitated. It's hard to rest in a world that's so built to be anti-God. And so Paul goes out in the marketplace and just starts preaching. Now, for many people that think about the Apostle Paul, And all of his wonderful literature, book of Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these awesome New Testament letters. And they think about the book of Acts as as, as it retells the triumph and and the toil of his missionary journeys. They don't really get a sense of what Paul would have looked like. He was whipped so often that he was bow legged. His face was caved in from stones. Half his beard would never grow back. Hair would pull out in clumps. Scars everywhere. And he would just stand on a street corner and just preach to you. It would have been an amazing sight to behold. History puts him about five foot four. So he's kind of, a, kind of a short guy. I'm kind of a short guy. But here's Paul the Apostle walking bow-legged, preaching Jesus. And he provokes the innerest of the powerful philosophical titans of Athens. Some of the best minds that have ever thought human thought that day in Athens among the Stoics, and the Epicureans, and they invite Paul up to come and speak to them so that they can learn a little bit about his philosophy. 
what's this, they said, what's this, what's this teaching that you've, you've brought to us? Now, what I'm going to do tonight is I've gone and appealed to an historian that I, I respect very much. He's a biographer. His name's John Pollock. And I thought he did a wonderful job at kind of poetically depicting this scenario of the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, on Mars Hill, finally engaging with the, the heavyweights, the titans, the, the title holders of philosophy. So John Pollock tells us that when Paul gets up to that place, he has to stand on the defender's stand. There's like his big stone. And then a prosecutor comes and stands on another stone. And the prosecutor issues a challenge to the, to the invited. The prosecutor steps forward to the stone of pride, that's what it's called. And with a grave courtesy that hid his amusement, this is how he addressed Paul. This is recorded in your Bible in Acts 17. He says, may we know what this new teaching is which you present. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, in that phrasing that you've read in your New Testament probably dozens of times, you haven't perhaps detected the latent menacing. It's almost that identical phrase, strange teachings, that Socrates, the greatest philosopher of all, had been executed for teaching strange things. Now the apostle is brought before these titans of philosophy to explain his strange teaching. As Pollock gives us this situation, Paul's, in Acts 17, the climax of Paul's discussion, and we're not going to read it tonight, although that would be a wonderful way to spend our evening together. Paul speaks about this God who's not worshipped and, and, and represented by things made with human hands. God is not identified with idolatry. God has made all of us. In him we live, we move, we have our being. God is not far from any of us, but God has called us to repentance. And at the climax of Paul's speech, he says this. He says, God has attested to a day of judgment. God has fixed a day and he has shown this by raising Christ from the dead. Now, as Pollock shows us and Acts 17 records for us, Gaffor broke the decorum of the assembly. A hubbub of voices and laughter interrupted Paul. They had heard enough. Did Paul really believe that a man could come back from the dead? It was absurdity to them. Such folly proved that Paul was unworthy to be accredited as a teacher among the wise Athenians. And they banished him. In fact, their words were, we will hear you on this subject some other time. But Paul knew that it was a dismissal. It was an unceremonious dismissal. Although the words do seem polite and endearing, I can assure you they weren't. Paul withdrew. He descended the rock with his back to the Acropolis. One of the Areopagites, Dionysius, followed Paul. We read that in Acts 17. But Paul has to leave quickly. The council refused him license to teach in Athens. And Athens has rejected Paul, and by Paul, it rejects the gospel. So when we read that in the book of Acts, Acts 17, and maybe you haven't read it in a while, go home today and, and pull it open and just kind of read through it. And as you read it, it's hard to think about that scenario of Paul, so much gospel triumph in his missionary exploits to read that scene, that scenario as anything other than abject failure. Like Paul, has, Paul has one chance in his illustrious life to, to engage with the philosophers of his day. And at the moment that there is mention of the resurrection of Christ, 
is dismissed. But what Pollock does, a, a great historian in his own right, he tells us that Paul could not have known that that speech that he delivered recorded in your Bible would go down in history beside the funeral oration of Pericles and the Philippics of Demosthenes as one of the greatest speeches ever delivered in Athens. But Paul, it would never have felt like that, right? Could, could you imagine Paul's feeling, that sinking feeling? Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone that you just believed and hoped that there'd be receptivity and you were so rebuffed and put off that you just kind of felt empty? You kind of felt useless? You kind of felt even a little bit of shame? Like, God, I, 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 I've let you down. I should have been better. I, I should have done better. But Paul could not have known that that speech he delivered that day has gone down as the greatest ever spoken in Athens. What is not recorded are the speeches of the Stoics or the Epicureans, but the speech of the Apostle Paul. Paul could not have known that entire tomes of th philosophy and theology will be written about that speech. And within a hundred to two hundred years, the Parthenon itself would be converted into a Christian church. So much for the erudite academicians of Athens. In fact, 19 centuries later, Paul could not have known that Greece would once more become a sovereign state and the national flag of Greece, bearing its unmistakable cross, fly beside the ruins of the Parthenon. Today, even in Greece, it gets lowered to half-mast every Good Friday and raised on Easter Day in honor of the resurrection of Christ. This is what Peter means. All flesh is like grass. And all the glory of humanity and mankind, it's like the fat flower of grass. But grass withers and flower falls. But what abides? What remains? What outlasts it all? It is the word of God. This shows that God, God's word acts often patiently, sometimes even surreptitiously, secretly, clandestine and covertly. God's word performs God's work. And all human achievement, all human accolade, all human pomp and pride is just grass and flowers that withers and falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, Peter wants to do more in this short passage that we've read together this evening. Peter wants to do a lot more than just kind of help you to think really big and, and glorious thoughts about the, about the word of God about its indomitability, about its lastingness. Paul wants you to think about the word of God's accessibility. Uh, Peter, sorry. Peter wants you. We're, we're talking about Peter. I'm going to mess up those two all night, so just, just bear with me. And Peter says, because this word is the good news that was preached to you. What can we say about so grand and noble and glorious a power as the word of God? We can say that according to the apostles, it's the foolish things of this world that God has chosen to shame the wise and it is the deposit of the otherwise shameful, humble, of no repute and no report among the world that God deposits this glorious treasure in jars of clay. This word of God which will outlast all of the material world, this word of God that will outlast every atom in our universe, this word of God that humbles the brightest minds and judges the thoughts and the intents of every human heart. 
This word of God is the good news preached even unto you. This is the good news. This is the good news that gets conveyed from one heart to another heart through the simple, ordinary means of communication, sharing, speaking. I I, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever been evangelizing? Maybe out on the street or just sharing with a work colleague or a a family member, and you you, you felt a little foolish, or, or you felt entirely impotent to make them grasp it. Sometimes what we do is we take up far too much onus on ourselves as the vehicle of communication and we downplay the power of the communication itself. The power of God is not in how well you can articulate it. It's in the truth of the content itself. The power of the Word of God is inexhaustible. Thus, it is unrelenting. I wonder if there are many here who've ever heard the testimony of a gentleman named Luke Short. I don't suspect many of you have. He lived in the colony of Virginia in the 1700s. It's such a curious story. This this gentleman, Luke Short, just an ordinary guy, not a believer, went to church every now and again, didn't engage, didn't like it, really just got out of it a cultural experience. And he lived to be 103 Now, I know that didn't land on you like it probably should have, but let me reassure you, very few people in the 1700s were living to 103. They hadn't discovered this modern invention of washing your hands, I don't know, showering regularly, brushing your teeth daily. Some of you should pick up the practice. I recommend it to you, right? Like like human modern medical advancement, when you go back just to the 1700s, it's pretty shocking how they lived. This guy, Luke Short, lived to 103 years of age, And then he tells a testimony. He's just going about his daily business, 103 years of age, and he remembers a gospel sermon that he heard preached to him 85 years earlier. And the moment he remembered it, his heart and mind apprehended it. He trusted in Christ, repented of sin, became a born-again believer in that instant. Now his tombstone still reads to this day. I'll read it to you. This is his tombstone. It says, Here lies a baby in grace, aged three years old, who died according to nature, 106. Out of the 106 years of this gentleman's life, three of them were lived the life of grace. The point of that testimony is not, oh, wow, that's spectacular. The point is, how long did the Word of God remain resident in his heart and mind before it activated its supernatural power to bring about the new life? Even for some of you, you've shared the gospel with work colleagues, friends, family, or or just entire strangers, maybe online, maybe on the street, maybe on the bus, wherever it is, and you felt in that moment that it achieved nothing. In fact, maybe you felt like you, you did more harm than good. But you know what the Word of God tells us about itself? It says it's living and it's abiding and the word of God never returns to him void but always achieves its purposes. Sometimes it takes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. And the example of this gentleman, 85 years later, could you imagine being that preacher? No doubt already dead, no doubt already in heaven, no doubt already enjoying his reward as a faithful gospel preacher, walk around with his crown. The Bible says we get them right. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, this Diamond just beams out of his crown. Where'd that come from? Someone just got saved from your ministry directly. How? Well, you preached to him 85 years ago. I want to assure you, 
If you are faithful in declaring the word, maybe you're not a preacher like me or Pastor Tom, but you are a messenger of grace. There are people you share the gospel with this week that may take years, possibly decades. You might even be in heaven already and your ministry to them sparks revival in their heart and they become born again. This word of God touching the furthest reaches of the world and yet remains always spreading. I want to share another account with you, one which often grips me and compels me to think about the nature of gospel ministry. That's the reason Peter writes this to these churches. He wants them to remember that when you're tempted to try and make something of yourself in the eyes of the world, bear in mind it's all grass, it's all stubble, it's all hay. And if you even do a great job and you get promoted to some illustrious position in the world, it's barely a flower of the grass. Grass withers, flowers fall. Only the word of God lasts forever. Only what you do for God lasts forever. Everything else is swept, swept off the shelf into oblivion of this world, but your ministry in the word is eternal. This story I was going to share, and I, I believe I'll go ahead and do that, although I, I'm not sure how pressed for time we are here tonight. It's about a missionary to China, a young woman who went to missionary in the early 1900s and spent many decades there. Now, a lot of her work in China, her name was Gladys Aylward, Gladys Aylward. She worked with orphans and children and, and, and did different work of that nature, but then sometimes she just went out on the streets to share Jesus Christ. There's this one story, she's in the far northern western regions of mainland China, many decades ago, and she feels compelled to just go from village to village and share Jesus. She finds this main kind of thoroughfare, this main road, and just follows it for days and weeks on end, stopping in every village she can find for a whole day, preach Christ, eat a meal, sleep in an inn, get up the next day, walk to the next village. Find another village, preach Christ. And she did this for weeks and weeks. Till finally she got to this village at the extremity of this road, and she said to them, what's the next village up this road? And they said, there is nothing left. This is the end. To them, it was the end of not just civilization, it was the end of humanity. She said, I have to press on. I feel, I feel God calling me to, to, to press on. And they warned her and warned her. And finally, in, in that particular village, there was, a, there was a doctor, a medical doctor who trusted Christ. He was a believer who offered to chaperone her for five days to satisfy her curiosity that there's no more villages and then bring her back. So they took about a week to two weeks supplies and they walked one day, two days, three, four, five, six days, seeing literally no one. But at this point, Gladys says, I'm feeling this incredible urge to press on this road. The doctor thinks, can I talk her out of it? I guess not. Let's keep walking. 10 days, 11 days, more days. Till finally they run entirely out of food. And they're there on this barren road in this entirely mountainous region where they haven't seen a single soul for weeks. And now their food has run out. So Gladys says to the doctor, his name's Dr. Huang, she says, we should pray, right? Always a good idea when you're, when you're at your last ebb, right? We probably should, I don't know, pray? Let's try that. So she falls down, they both fall down on their knees and she prays, God, help us. We don't have any food for today, and it's a long walk back. We might be in a little bit of trouble here. 
Then the doctor prays, and what's his prayer? He prays, God, show us who is the person that you want us to share the good news of Jesus with, for which we've traveled all this way, through all of this barren wilderness, who is the person that needs to hear about you? Well, they finish praying, they look at each other, nothing's happening. Gladys says, what should I do? The doctor says, literally, he says, let's sing. So they start singing a hymn. They get to the end of the first hymn, still nothing. The next one, still nothing. And finally, the doctor springs to his feet, springs off to the mountainside and screams out, I found our man. And she's kind of scratching her head, looking around like this is all very bizarre. And finally, she sees the doctor coming back over the mountain and says, come up, come up, you've got to meet this guy. So Gladys comes up the mountain and there standing in the pride of a saffron robe was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Gladys says, did you tell him that I was a woman? Monks are sworn from ever interacting with or speaking to women. And Dr. Huang said, yeah, I, I, I told him. He's good with it. He's fine. He wants to invite us back to his monastery. Gladys says again, does he still know I'm a woman? That's entirely forbidden. On pain of death for Tibetan monks to welcome women into their monastery. I'm going to pick up the story in Gladys' own words at this juncture of this particular narrative. She says she walked into the monastery through these amazingly huge stone and, and, and barred gates. She says, I wondered if we'd ever get to the other side of these gates again. We walked in, she said, and we were shown to a large room where 500 Tibetan Buddhist monks were sitting almost frozen like statues in a, in a reverent posture saying and doing nothing, just frozen. She said, we were shown to two little kind of bamboo cushions and made to sit down. And we did. And then she said, I turned to Dr. Huang and said, what, what are we supposed to do? What is going on here? And he said, just sing. So she said, I, I sang. And then she said, what do we do now? He said, I'm going to teach. He began to talk about the good news of Jesus. God sending his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, dying on the cross, rising from the dead to save sinners like us. He then turned back to Gladys and said, now sing again. She sang another hymn. Then he began teaching more of the truth of Scripture. And this went on for hours. She would sing, he would teach. Then back to her to sing, then back to him to teach. She was amazed by all of this. It went on for several hours and she said, turning to Dr. Huang, she said, I am so tired, I'm about to fall over. What are we supposed to do? He said, fine, we'll take some time to rest. So they were shown to small, little, tiny rooms. She said, as she was preparing for bed, I'm going to read her in her own words now, I've paraphrased most of the story, there was a knock at the door. Two priests, two monks stood outside the door and they said, woman, are you too tired to tell us some more? They came in. They listened intently for several minutes and then they went away. And three minutes later, she opened the door. Two more were there. She said, this went on all night. Always the same question. Will you explain how and why Jesus died? Will you explain how he could love someone like me? She went on to say, these men never questioned that God was the creator of the world. They never doubted the truth of the virgin birth. They never considered any miracle of the Bible beyond belief. 
It was the wonder of God's love which obsessed them. Christ's death on Calvary entirely possessed their minds with awe and reverence. The next morning, she said, I found out that Dr. Huang had exactly the same experience all night, knocks on the door, two by two, teaching the good news of God's wonderful salvation. She said, after a week of this experience, she was finally summoned to visit the head priest. She had not even seen him or knew his name. Dr. Huang was not invited, just Gladys. To my surprise, she said, he spoke the pure Mandarin Chinese of Peking, which I understood perfectly. We discussed various things, she said. And then I asked, very daringly, why did you let me, a foreign woman, come into this monastery and teach your priests? He said, it's a long story, but it starts out like this. Now I'm going to paraphrase because there's paragraphs of this. He said, on the side of the mountain where our, our large monastery has been built and has stood stately for centuries, there are fields of licorice herb that we harvest and our monks take to distant villages to sell and that's how we supply our monastery with, with food and, and just basic necessities. And one day, two of our monks harvested all of this licorice herb, took it down to a very faraway village, trying to sell the herb to get some money to buy more food and supplies for the monastery. And upon entering the village, there was this man in the middle square of the village shouting out very simple phrases. Let me give you the precise phrases that this particular person was yelling out. If I can find it. He was yelling out, who wants one? And waving a piece of paper. Salvation, free and for nothing. Whoever believes gets salvation and lives forever. Take one now. A little slip of paper. The monks took the paper, brought it back to the monastery. Gladys says, then I was shown this piece of paper, now worn and in tatters and pieces, fixed to the wall of the monastery. It was an ordinary tract that simply had John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. From that they learned that there is a God and that this God loves and that this God who loves has intervened into the world on a rescue mission. But that's all they could ascertain. They knew no more, but they prayed to this God who loves. That's how they called him. They didn't know his name. The God who loves, they would pray for year on year, decade on decade, as this wilting little piece of paper on the wall is getting older and more decrepit, they are praying, God who loves, send us someone to teach us about your truth. And he says, finally, just a week ago, one of our monks was down on the other side of the mountain that we rarely go down because it's near the, the road. And he heard in the thin mountain air someone singing songs. And he knew instantly that's the messenger that the God who loves has sent to us. Because only a believer in the God who loves would sing so sweetly and joyously and triumphantly. And that's why he said, you've been invited here right now into our monastery to educate us. Gladys summarizes this entire incident this way. She says, Dr. Huang and I were privileged to be used as God's messengers to share the good news in this place that he appointed. We left the rest to him and the work of his Holy Spirit. I often wondered what happened to those 500 Tibetan Buddhist monks. 
that many of them believed, trusted, and received salvation? She says, I have no doubt. God's love had prepared the soil to receive the seed of the word of God. And only eternity will we ever learn the result of one of the strangest weeks, she said, I've ever spent in China. This is the reality of the nature of God's word. Piercing the darkness, penetrating unbelief and all resistance. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has no resistance. And the calling upon us, brothers and sisters, is to be emissaries of this good news. Not to believe that the power of the gospel is resident in our ability to articulate it, but to believe the power in the gospel is resident in the message itself. It is the gospel unto salvation, the power of God to all who believe. This is why Peter says, grass withers, flowers fall, but this word, this word endures forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Now, perhaps the greatest tragedy the greatest tragedy that we could all experience here tonight is for me to wax on lyrically for so long as I have about the gospel and not actually get to the gospel. I, I've told this story before. In fact, I think I've told it here at a conference just a year or two ago. I went to a pastor's kind of conference down the Gold Coast many years ago now, probably more than 10 years ago. And the conference was billed as, as a conference for ministers and pastors and church planners about gospel-centered ministry. So I was, I was very eager and interested in attending. And we went to all these sessions and all these different speakers, some of them from overseas and different parts of the world, and they all spoke about gospel something. It was like, you know, gospel-centered music and gospel-centered, I don't know, chair arrangement, gospel-centered temperature for the AC, gospel-centered whatever, right? For like eight sessions straight, and my associate pastor and I drove home, and I turned to him and I said, you know the one thing that was missing are these four days of constant lecturing about gospel something, no one articulated the gospel. How could that be so easily neglected and forgotten? But the same could be said here tonight. We could talk about the glory of the word of God, the good news that was preached to you, grass withers, flower falls, the gospel endures forever, and just go home and not actually mention the truth of the gospel of God's love. That God loved this world, this sin-sunken, careering toward hell of a world so much, then rather than just kind of destroy it in an instant of just vengeance, which he could, he sent Christ. He sent his only dear son. You stop and meditate upon that for just a fraction of a second. What could God have given you that would have ever cost him anything at all? Gold? Stars? universes, God creates these things with the word and the breath of his mouth. But his own dear son, his irreplaceable son was granted to us to come into this world, to live sin free and yet to die upon a cross, to take to himself our shame, our failure, our brokenness, our wretchedness, our depravity and sin was laid on Christ that we might be saved. He is the substitute for us. Where we failed, he succeeded. Where we made utter ruin of our lives because all of us have sinned, Jesus gloriously obeyed God in every single thing. 
He was without harm. He was without defilement. He was without sin. Yet he went to the cross and he showed us what bearing the penalty of sin is. It is death and utter torment of death that we might believe, that we might be ransomed and redeemed from our sinful ways and brought into relationship with God because this Jesus, although truly died on the cross, rose again on the third day to deliver us to lead us in triumphal procession, to grant us this eternal life which he now possesses by the merits of his glorious life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes here this evening as we close in just a moment with a word of prayer. I want to I lay the challenge to you all here tonight. I'm not asking you, have you been to church much? I'm not asking you, have you been a good little Christian boy or girl? I'm asking you, do you know that your sins are forgiven in Christ? Do you have an assurance that when God looks to you, He doesn't see your failure, He sees Christ's righteousness? Do you know that you're born again, saved and set free, not by any effort of your own, not by any merit that you've achieved, but on the basis of Christ alone? This is the good news of the gospel that is now being preached to you that we can be reconciled back to God through no effort of our own, but entirely on the basis of the merits of Christ. Do you have that peace of heart? And if you do not, I encourage you, do not leave this building tonight without asking someone to minister and pray to you to receive this gift of eternal life. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word tonight. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have, firstly, to be recipients of this gospel. This glorious, eternal, unchanging, immutable, invulnerable treasure. Because we are everything opposite to that. We are mortal. We are fallen. We are failing. We are miserable. In and of ourselves, we are depraved wretches. But you have granted us this eternal life. You've granted us this grace and this mercy. And you've commissioned us, not just to be saved by grace, but to be agents of grace, to communicate this good news to all and any that we should meet. I pray tonight, Lord God, if there's anyone here that's yet to believe in Jesus for salvation, may they right now know that that is open and available to them in this instant, to trust in Christ. And may every one of us know We may have been believers for decades or maybe we're in our first day of our Christian walk. We are all commissioned by Christ to be agents of his word. God, help us to feel the privilege of this high and lofty calling and help us to live our lives in keeping with this imperative that is upon us. We ask all these things in the glory and in the power of Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.